Well, it's the summer of 1978. It's a warm, sunny day, a breeze is blowing. Magic Island Park in Honolulu, Hawaii. 13-year-old boy in a t-shirt and board shorts wades out into the lagoon, just past waist deep. A 70-year-old preacher wades out in his rubber hip waders, carefully holding his Bible above the water to keep it dry. A small group of friends and family are watching from the shore. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? The preacher's voice booms across the lagoon as onlookers and beachgoers begin to take notice. The boy nods his head and quietly says, yes, I do. The preacher then proclaims, because of your confession, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And before he can even know what is happening, the boy is plunged over backwards into the lagoon. Salt water fills his mouth and his nose. And suddenly he's pulled back up out of the water by the preacher, sputtering and gasping for breath. People on the beach, both friends and strangers, applaud at the sight. And then it's done. The boy has been baptized. I had been baptized. My choice at age 13, in response to a, a steady diet of old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone preaching, thundering condemnations of sin, mindful of God's all-seeing eye, a God to be feared, I made a decision to escape the punishment that I knew was due to me. And these are all truths. Sin is serious. The consequences of sin are real. And we should want to avoid the eternal separation from God to pursue all that is good. Well, that happened when I was just a young teenager. When I came to understand in some small way my own flaws and brokenness and sin and rebellion. But it took a whole series of unfolding events and people and circumstances in my life over about the next 20 years or so for me to fully come to understand something of even more significance. Jesus didn't want me to merely settle for salvation. He wanted more, much, much more. He wants it all. He wanted me to understand that not only is he my savior who paid for my sins, but that I needed to really allow him to be the Lord, the ruler, the leader of my life. Despite that decision on a beach all those years ago, it took me a few decades to move from a focus on my way his way, from serving self to serving him, from merely avoiding punishment to purposely choosing eternity. Over the last several weeks, we've been asking this question, what's next? What's next? And our focus has been on the reality of eternity. Bruce has reminded us both of the tragic consequences of hell and the incredible hope of heaven. Last Sunday, Bruce focused on that incredible and beautiful hope in heaven that is to come 
that is promised by God. But that promise, that anticipation, that certainty is reserved only for those who make a clear choice to follow God's plan, to seek God's purpose for their life in this world. And so today, our message is focused on this truth, that we must each make a clear and focused decision, not just to escape hell, but to choose eternity, to choose heaven. And so as we focus on this choice that will impact every single person in this world, I want to use two scripture passages to help us grasp the reality that each of us must mindfully and purposefully choose heaven. Now, the first scripture that I want to share is John 3.16. might sound familiar to you. For years, zealous Christians have displayed John 3.16 in public places, in the end zones, at football games, on television, on billboards and bumper stickers and t-shirts. John 3.16 is the best known Bible reference in the Western world, even if most people don't know what the verse actually says. I wonder why this reference gets so much attention. What's, what's the big deal? Well, I think John 3.16 is such a big deal for Christians because it gives a one-sentence summary of the most important truths in the Bible. John 3.16 announces the good news of the Bible in 25 words. You can even tweet the entire verse word for word without any abbreviations. Here it is in just 125 characters, including spaces. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In those few words, there's a lot at stake. I want you to notice the last seven words, which talk about a person either perishing or having eternal life. That's important stuff. Relevant for every single one of us. When all is said and done, when our life is over, do we want to perish Or do we want to live eternally with God? As I said this, as I said, this verse summarizes what Christians call the gospel, the good news. The good news that begins in John 3.16 with two amazing truths about God. And if we're going to find eternal life, we must clearly understand these two truths. The first amazing truth about God is this. God loves the people of the world. Now that might be old news for many of you. Something you already believe. Most people who believe in a God believe that that God loves people. But I want you to notice something important in this verse. It doesn't actually say that God loves people. It says that God loves the world. Who or what is the world that God loves? Well, the Apostle John, who wrote this Bible book that contains John 3.16, had a specific group of people in mind when he talked about the world. You see this when you read the rest of his book. When he used the word world, he didn't mean this planet, earth. He meant the people 
who did not believe and follow God. He was talking about people who were doing their own thing. In other words, he meant sinners. God so loved the world. So when it says that, it means that God loves people who don't love him back. People who take him for granted or avoid him or ignore him or don't care about him or his commands. God loves people who stay home on Sunday morning instead of going to church because they're wasted from partying on Saturday night. God loves people who prefer to read the Sunday paper instead of the Bible. Or prefer to stay home and watch football experts on TV predicting who might win the games that day. You see, God loves these people, these irreligious, non-believing, non-Christian people, because God loves the world. Does that raise some questions in your mind? Well, if so, there are good reasons for those questions. First, many verses in the Bible talk about God's anger against sin and against sinners. There's even a word commonly associated with God's anger. Wrath. You've probably heard the phrase, the wrath of God. From cover to cover, the Bible describes a final judgment when all people will stand before God and give account for their lives. Those who fail the test on that day will suffer God's eternal wrath. That's the wrath so carefully extolled to me in my childhood. And so how can God's wrath against sinners, how can that balance out at the same time with this love of the world? Well, there's another good reason to question God's love for sinners. The Bible narrates many stories in which God judges people who have sinned. Just one example is the story of Noah's Ark, which records how God destroyed many, many people through a great flood because of their evil hearts and actions. People literally died because they rebelled against God. And his wrath was revealed. The Bible teaches consistently that God feels anger toward people who disobey him, ignore him, take him for granted. And that he does, at the appointed time, punish them. And so how do we make sense of this? Well, The answer is this. At once, God both feels anger and love towards those who ignore him. Anyone who's a parent can understand what that's like. Anyone who's been romantically in love knows what it's like to feel both anger and love toward the same person. And so John 3.16 reminds us that God loves all people, even those who make him angry as they disobey and ignore him. And because of his love, for a limited time, God gives the people of the world an opportunity to make peace with him. Because God loves this world. God loves the poor and he loves the rich. He loves men and women and boys and girls. God loves older people using their walker to shuffle down the sidewalk. And he loves newborn babies dozing in their mama's arms. 
He loves the strong and the healthy and he loves the weak and the sick and the abandoned and the broken. God loves the educated and he loves the illiterate. He loves people from every group, black and white and brown. God loves the self-disciplined and he loves the addict. He loves the high and mighty and he loves the low and the powerless and the oppressed. And therefore, God loves liars and thieves and adulterers. He loves rapists and pedophiles. And he loves the victims of sexual predators. God loves gangbangers and murderers and those who abort babies. And yes, he loves those helpless victims. God loves transvestites and homosexuals. God loves the greedy and the lazy and the good for nothing. He loves the employed and the unemployed. He loves the homeless. He also loves deadbeat dads. God loves the divorced. And he loves the happily married and he loves the miserably married. He loves the single and the widowed. God loves those who bow down to idols and who bow down to sports teams. God loves those who are addicted to pornography. And God loves atheists and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. God even loves those who take his name in vain. You see, because God loves the world. He loves evil people. He loves his enemies. He loves those who hate him. He loves the gentle soul who wouldn't harm a fly. And he loves selfish, mean, proud, vicious people. He loves everyone. He loves you. And he loves me. No matter what we've done. And so the first amazing truth that we learn about God in John 3.16 is that God loves the world. He loves sinners. But there's a second amazing truth here as well, and that is that God expressed that love to this world by giving His one and only Son. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. You see, God didn't love us in words alone. The most important demonstration of God's love for sinners is Jesus Christ. Giving Jesus to the world was an act of radical, unthinkable love. How unthinkable was it? Let's do an exercise together. I want you right now to think in your mind of the one person that you love the most in this world. Maybe it's your parent or your child or your spouse or a friend or a brother or a sister. You think about that person. Get him right there in your mind's eye. Now, I want you to think about a person toward whom you have the worst feelings. Maybe you have an enemy. Maybe it's someone you work with or a neighbor, someone who has hurt you greatly. Maybe it's someone you've never even met, like a celebrity or a politician. But you just can't stand that person. Maybe being around that person is like chewing sand. I want you to think about that person. I want you to imagine that that person is in terrible need. Let's say that they're in a hospital in critical condition and they, they need a, a kidney transplant in order to survive. Would you, would you be willing to help that person? 
in costly ways? Would you give thousands of dollars to help that person? Would you volunteer to donate a kidney? Would you ask the person that you love the most in the world to donate his or her kidney for that person that you so despise? How about, would you ask the person you love the most to do this if you knew that the surgery would result in unthinkable suffering and loss? Would you willingly sacrifice the person that you love the most to die? so that the person that you dislike the most could live. Imagine imagine saying goodbye to the person you love most and seeing him or her wheeled through the hospital door. And then just a few hours later, seeing your enemy come out those same doors. Could you do that? You see, that's what Jesus did. When God sent His one and only Son, He gave Jesus to the world and He did the unthinkable to rebellious, angry, undeserving people. He gave His Son. See, that's why John 3.16, so familiar, is followed by John 3.17. Not quite as familiar which says, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. The gift of Jesus Christ is God's greatest evidence of His love for sinners. It's the greatest evidence of His love for you. God did this for you, and He did it for me. He became our Savior on the cross. Well, this brings us to the next critical truth concerning God's love for us. And perhaps no one puts it better than the Apostle Paul. I want you to listen to these words carefully from Romans chapter 5 in verse 6. At just the right time, when we were powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's what, that's what God did for Paul. That's what God did for me. That's what God does for you. There are so many remarkable stories in Scripture that catch our attention, and they remind us of how wonderful God's love is for sinners and how He can take people out of the worst of darkness and give them eternal life. But I don't think there's any story as compelling as that of Saul. Saul, who became Paul, who wrote those words that I just read in Romans 5. Just a few years after the time of Jesus, there was a young religious Jewish man who hated the name of Jesus. He hated the message of the gospel that I've explained today. 
And he was doing all that he could to get Christians arrested and imprisoned and killed. The blood of many Christian martyrs was on his hands and his name was Saul. But one day God met him on the road to Damascus and he knocked him off his horse and he spoke to him. And Saul repented and he became a follower of Jesus. And he became later the apostle Paul. And he started preaching the gospel that he had once so hated and despised. And he shared that gospel all over the Mediterranean world. And he even wrote many of the letters in what we call the New Testament today. And Saul's story shows us that God really does love the world. He really does love sinners. And so are these amazing truths? Are they the end of the story? Does God loves the world and he loves you and so now everything is okay? God demonstrated his love by giving his son Jesus to die on the cross and so now everything's okay. Does that mean that we can go on with our life as we are now and when we die, we go to heaven? Some people believe that. Some churches teach that. But I want you to see in John 3.16 that something is expected of you. Something is expected of me. And that is that we must respond to God's love. That's contained in the word believe. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, say it with me, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, some people have authentic belief. And some people have merely head belief. Authentic belief is not just a head thing. It is a heart thing. Authentic belief is like what athletes have when they follow the instructions of the coach that they trust. Athletes with with mere head belief might acknowledge that the coach is in charge, but that they train and compete in a way that ignores the coach. The person with mere head belief goes his or her own way. They do what seems best to them. On the other hand, athletes with heart belief, they trust in the coach, in the coach's program. They trust that the coach knows what he's talking about. And so they train and compete in line with what the coach says to do. And so the sign of authentic belief is when the athlete submits to their coach to be molded into a champion. That's what took me years to understand. I didn't fully understand this truth when I stood next to this lagoon all those years ago at age 13. This idea that Jesus did not die merely to save me. You see, he has so much more in mind 
for me and for you and for all who would declare their belief in him. And who better to explain this for us than the Apostle Paul? So we're going to move just to the next chapter, chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Listen to Paul's words. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You see, if we truly believe in Jesus, then we will follow him and his teachings. We will make him our life coach, if you will. But much more than that, let's use the Bible word, we will make him our Lord, our master, our leader. If we truly believe in Jesus, we will repent of doing life our way and start the lifelong process of learning to do life His way. We will come to understand that salvation is not the end result. Rather, it is just the beginning of change and newness and experience and growth. And in His great wisdom, Jesus has given us a physical, visible, real moment to both express and receive these great truths. And that experience is baptism. In and through baptism, we literally share in His death and His burial and His resurrection so that we might come to experience what Paul calls now the newness of life. The newness of life. Jesus said in his own words that I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life. The new life that comes when we are born again. Becoming a follower of Jesus is sort of like a wedding ceremony in which I say, I do. And since the time that Jesus lived, millions of people have responded to God's call by believing in Jesus. Not just a head belief, but a heart belief. Virtually all of those believers have been unknown people. Men and women like you and me. Living our everyday lives. Our stories aren't necessarily dramatic. But they are infinitely important. And so today, brothers and sisters, may we each fully come to understand the great reality of the joy that comes 
when we choose heaven.